Good morning, y'all. How you guys doing this morning? Good, good. Well, uh, my name is Mark Speeder. I'm the lead pastor here at Antioch. Uh, our heartbeat is that we are a people with a passion for Jesus and his purposes in the earth. We want to be passionately about Jesus, our Savior, who loves us, forgives us, gave his life for us. And because we love him, we want to be about what he's about in the earth throughout all week long. So one of those things that we get to be about as Jesus people is this thing called joy. Anyone like joy? Yeah. Now, if you don't like joy, then we can pray for you. Uh, if you just want to, you know, stay unjoyful, uh, you're free to stay that way. Uh, but we love joy. And so one of the books of the Bible that talks about joy is the book of Philippians. So we are taking a good chunk of our summer to go through the book of Philippians, which I am really excited about. Um, and we are inviting you to not only read Philippians with us, but to be doing a couple simple disciplines or practices that will increase your joy. Two simple things. One, is we are together over the course of like nine or 10 weeks. I think we can do it. It's not that long of a verse. We're gonna memorize a verse. In fact, we're gonna say it together. All right, you guys ready? All right, we're gonna read this verse right up on the screen. Okay, kids that can read, join us right here. We go, three, two, one. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let's try it one more time. Here we go. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Sorry for those of you who my big noggin was blocking. Uh, but that'll be good preparation for you to memorize it because my head might be in front of it next week. Okay, we get to choose to rejoice in the Lord. That's our memory. And the second thing is we're going to invite you to daily take a few minutes to choose thankfulness. You ever did a time of being thankful and write it down and be more frustrated at your life? No, no, it takes us the right direction. So we're gonna choose uh, thankfulness, a simple daily exercise, start your day. Instead of focusing on what's wrong, focus on what you can be thankful for. Okay, so as we start the second week of Philippians, I wanna hear from you guys, what are a few threats to our joy in life? Busyness. What else? Bitterness. Busyness and bitterness. There's two powerful ones right there. What else? Pride. Pride. Yep. Anxiety. Anxiety. Do I have one in the back? Work. Yeah, that's right. Work sure can be a barrier to our joy. Anger. Anger. That's right. Well, I want to talk today about one of the main thieves of our joy. We got some thieves Hopefully not some thieves in the room. We have some things said that are joy thieves. Uh, <laughs> uh, one of our main joy thieves, though, is envy in comparison. Yeah. Envy in comparison. I want to I talk a little bit about that today. Have you ever been going along in life and you're content, you're happy, things are great, and then all of a sudden... Something comes up. Someone else succeeds around you. You look on Instagram, 
And you see how great someone's life is and all the travels they're doing and the memories they're making that you're not making. You were content two minutes ago. You were happy two minutes ago. And all of a sudden, it's gone. The joy is gone. And you're frustrated at the portion that you have in your life. I remember uh, early on after I got saved, uh, I'd been following Jesus for a couple years, and uh, before I was a Jesus follower, I, I, I led a bunch of stuff in, in high school, and I was a leader, and so uh, I was kind of, Lord, would you raise me up as a leader? You know, all the, those prayers. And so I go on this mission trip. God is transforming my life, and I am just more in love with Jesus than ever before, more free than ever before. And all of a sudden, they asked my buddy to step up and be the new leader, and not me. I was more in love with Jesus than ever before. I was happy and content with my life. And all of a sudden, someone else's success robbed my joy. Man, I thought, I should be a leader because, listen, here's where my mind went. I know that guy. And I know the things he struggles with, and I know some things that maybe make him not uh, quite the leader that other people think he is. And, and, and I got in my mind, oh, here's why I should be a leader. And, and all of a sudden, I started to compare myself to him. And I all of a sudden started to compare myself to others. And I started to work harder and show people how spiritual I am after all. That's tiring, isn't it? You got tired just listening to me. Thankfully, by God's grace, he convicted me and I uh, stopped playing the comparison game in that scenario. And as I'll share shortly, though, that's been a struggle in my life. And I would bet that's been a struggle in all of our lives some way or another. I think we can all relate. You see, envy and comparison is one of the greatest thieves of joy in our day. As, as one person said, it, it is the... Uh, comparison and envy is the most joyless of the seven deadly sins. And so I want to look at Philippians today, verse 12 to 18 of chapter 1. We're going to define envy and why it's a joy killer. And then we're going to learn from the Apostle Paul a couple simple ways that we move forward out of the trap of envy and comparison. And we're going to get our joy back. Anyone want to get your joy back from envy today? You want to take it back from envy? Let's go. Verse 12 through verse 18, Paul said this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word of God without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from good will. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. So what's going on here? As we talked about last week, Paul is not writing this book with a theme of joy from the mountaintop experience. He is writing this book 
from prison or house arrest in Rome. And he's writing to the Philippian church from his imprisonment, reminding them to find joy in Jesus as we face life's trials. But one of the other things going on is that Paul also wrote the book of Philippians to address some factions and frustrations that were happening in the church in Philippi. In fact, some, some new leaders are being raised up, and there was division because these young leaders, these newer people, they were doing ministry, and they were doing the work of Jesus for their own good and actually trying to divide people against the apostle Paul. Now, I want to look a little bit more specifically to understand what's going on in this situation. Who are these people? What's going on? Verse 15 and verse 17. It said they were preaching Christ from envy and rivalry. But others were doing it from goodwill. It said the former were proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition and even thinking to afflict Paul by their actions in imprisonment. So to maybe give a summary, they were, if you can move to the next verse, they were preaching for envy and rivalry through the wrong motives. They were doing it to feel good about themselves. And they were doing it not out of love, but for their own motives. And they were trying to stir up trouble to discredit Paul and his leadership. And so what these leaders are doing and what out of their own selfishness, they were actually trying to slow down the ministry of another believer. So you're these leaders, these people, and they're saying, I need to be first. I'm actually going to slow down Paul. Then it wasn't these guys were preaching the wrong message. Because Paul would have had a harsh rebuke for them if that was the case. Paul was okay being the first or the last. His joy was that in Christ was proclaimed, they were preaching the right message with the wrong heart. So essentially these are insecure and broken and proud Christians who are making a name for themselves rather than God and trying to compete. What was in their heart? Two things we see in this passage Envy and rivalry. Everyone say envy and rivalry. All right. Now, what is envy? Let's get a little definition of that. Now, the Greek word here translated for envy comes from another root word that means decay, breakdown, corruption, and to destroy. As Bob Sorge calls envy, he, he, he calls it this, distress over someone else's success. He calls envy distress over someone else's success. Now, we all feel a little like gut punch on that one because we've been there, right? It's wanting to bring someone down to our own level, right? And that's the example of what happened here with these Philippian believers. They were trying to tear down the work of God through Paul down to their own level so they could feel better about themselves. Now, a couple other places we see envy in Scripture, Proverbs 14, 30. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Some imagery there. Anyone want rotting bones? I came to church today, get some rotting bones. Uh, how about James chapter 3? James has not minced words with us about selfish ambition. He said, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast or be false to the truth. 
This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Woo! Lord, we just need to do a ministry time right now. Help us all. He says that selfish ambition is demonic in its origins. That was the very thing that brought Satan down. Satan was the worship leader. And he wanted glory not for God but for himself. And it says that where selfish ambition lies, behind the scenes, there is disorder in every evil thing. And we've seen that in the church. We see that in church failures. We see that in, in ministry leader failures. When, when something in their life blows up and all of a sudden you see behind the scenes, it was driven by selfish ambition. We see it in our own lives and the world around us. Where selfish ambition exists, there is often disorder in every evil thing behind that. It looks great temporarily on the inside, but often brings destruction or on the outside, but it brings destruction on the inside. It's like Snow White, right? Mirror, mirror, who is on the wall? Who's the fairest one of all? And he goes on to say, vain is your beauty, majesty, but a lovely maid I see. You look beautiful on the outside, but you're rotting on the inside because you're after your own beauty rather than the glory of God. Root, the root of that is ultimately comparison. That my joy is based on how I succeed or fail in comparison to others. So what envy does is it not only wages war against our joy, but it distracts us from God's purposes in ourselves and makes us want to tear down God's purposes through others. Now let's look at the second word, rivalry. What is rivalry? A definition for that, to wrestle or strife, competition or the love of argument. Do you think we have a little bit of that going on in our world today? Strife, competition and the love of argument. Like, I cannot get on Nextdoor app or Facebook with any basic post about, like, a kitten being rescued and it becoming a divisive argument, you know? We have rivalry in our world today, right? And the motive, right, of these believers in Philippians was to stir up trouble. Now, that literally means to add pressure or restrictions, and so the picture there is these believers were literally trying to throw roadblocks. Paul is running his race, and you have believers throwing roadblocks in front of other believers so that those believers would trip and fall, and the work of God would be shut down so they could feel better about themselves. They wanted in their minds to beat Paul so they felt better about themselves. Now, this isn't just a temptation for us, but as we look throughout world history and biblical history, we see this problem again and again. Let's just look at Scripture. Cain and Abel, Lot and Abraham, Jacob and Esau, Rachel and Leah, Joseph and the brothers, 
David and Korah, Saul and David, the brothers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, religious leaders, numerous early churches, the Galatian church, the Corinthian church, the Philippian church. And what you'll notice is that most of these are brother, brother, sister, sister, brother, sister. These are peer relationships. You see, when we're younger and if someone is ahead of us, then we rejoice. They're doing great. Or if we're older and someone is struggling, we have compassion to help them. But if we have a peer and they're ahead of us, what often comes out of us is we feel threatened. Our well-being, our identity, our self of worth, our sense of self-worth often feels threatened when people around us start succeeding. And so this brings up the, comp- the concept of competition. Is competition good? Is competition bad? Is it Christian? Is it unchristian? What is it? Now we see in scripture's examples of good competition and bad competition. It's a good competition. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, he said, I am running the race of my life and calling in such a way to win. Do you think that was bad? No, Paul was running in such a way to win the race. He said, I want to give it my all in my calling. I want to be disciplined and focused. You see, good competition leads us to cheer others on. Good competition leads us to make a way for others. Good competition leads us to be better and more disciplined so that we can serve others. You see, good competition has a sense of stewardship of our calling and gifts, not for our glory, but for his glory and for others' well-being. But here's unhealthy competition. Where it gets bad is when competition turns into comparison. When we're competitive out of comparison, we work hard for ourselves and we use the measures of man or mankind to measure our success rather than the measures of God. We often use human measures to value our self-worth rather than the measures in the word of God. We see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Paul said this, we dare not classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. A lot of themselves in there. (laughs) They're full of themselves. And it says when we are full of ourselves and comparing ourselves among ourselves, we're not wise. Let me say it differently. Paul said, you're acting dumb. And we've all done that, right? You see, because we have a world around us where our value depends on how we measure up to others. 
We measure ourselves by our education. We measure ourselves by how we can speak, dance, or perform. We measure ourselves by our finances or our degrees. We measure ourselves by our athleticism. We measure ourselves by our looks, by our car, by our house, by our spouse, by our kids, or lack thereof, or our personality type, or our Enneagram type, or our Myers-Briggs type, or our social media followers, and even in church. We compare ourselves among ourselves and are filled with selfish ambition. And what happens when we get tangled up in that is we live on a pendulum between pride and insecurity. When I'm doing good and it looks good on the outside, I'm prideful, I'm feeling good. And then when someone else starts to succeed, we're swinging over here and I'm insecure. But you see, well, even when we're prideful, it's just because we're insecure. And so instead of living centered and confident, and I'm just being who I am because I'm free. And I'm just being me and who God made me because I'm free. We are living swinging from side to side with our feet not on the ground and our emotions all over the place and our focus being dragged left and right and unable to love people around us that God gave us. And as a result, what we often do is we actually forfeit the grace and the call of God on our lives because we're throwing it away to replicate someone else's. So how do we know if we have envy? Just a few things that I... Y'all, I had to pray a lot this week, too, so just so you know, I'm preaching to myself. Uh, I'll get there in a minute. We feel better about ourselves when someone else fails. We feel threatened when we hear about someone else's success. We have a hard time celebrating when someone else is promoted. We depend on the praise of others. We feel bad about ourselves when we perceive we're less gifted. Maybe to simplify it, as I heard one pastor note it, they said, envy is exposed when our brother or sister is outwardly blessed. And I'll be honest, this has been a huge pain point in my life. I grew up in an environment where what was outward was valued. People around me went to sometimes Harvard schools, they went to some of the best schools and had money and different things. And I was raised, not necessarily by my parents, but the world around me that I had to succeed outwardly to feel good about myself. And throughout the course of life, I've either found myself comparing myself against others or constantly measuring my perceived success to make sure I feel good about myself. And sure, God has been gracious and dealt with me and I've gotten so much freedom, but it has been a long, lifelong journey for me. I even remember back when we launched our church, I didn't even know it, but there was a narrative in the back of my head about some of my peers who had planted churches a couple years before us, and I'm thinking, I've got to keep up with them. 
I didn't outwardly think that. I didn't know that narrative was going on in my head. But there was this music and this tape reel playing in the back of my head. I need to keep up with them because they look successful. And I need to prove that I'm one of the club. I didn't, and that narrative doesn't take into account the unique things that God's doing or the location or the unique challenges, different things. It is just a reel that is never ending in the back of your head. And I have a tendency to do the same with my kids or my life or my this or my that. I could keep going down the list of things I can tend to measure my success against again and again. And what that has produced in my life is a treadmill that I feel like I'm on that only speeds up as the years go on. And I came to a point a number of years ago where I literally feel like, man, every year of my life that goes on, the treadmill gets faster and I feel like I'm farther behind. Let me tell you, that's exhausting. Let me tell you that that is no way to live if you want to be present and love others. I want to encourage you, don't believe the lie that you will be happy when you compare favorably with others. Because that is a treadmill that never slows down. There's no circumstance in which that slows down because when you get there, then it only speeds up because someone else is succeeding or doing better or living the life you hope. Whether it's how you look, the money you make, how spiritual you think you are, how politically correct you think you are, how many experiences you had, I want to encourage you, you can get off that treadmill. That for me is a daily thing. I get off that treadmill daily because my mind got so warped for so many years that direction. It is a daily choice. It is, I feel free and it is something that can creep in very quickly. I have to daily get off the treadmill and stand in my identity in Christ and stand in who he says I am and stand in who he is to be at rest. So what is Paul's response? Because I want to learn from Paul on how he navigated this. Just as I, this last 10 years, has been like the main thing God has done in my soul. Uh, Just as I've learned from Paul, I want us to learn from Paul together. So let's take a look at Paul's response here. Again, we've got other people succeeding, coming to Paul, you know, You're going to get beaten, essentially, by others. And Paul is sitting in prison. He's out of control. He can't do anything to be more successful. He can't do anything to look better in the eyes of others. Verse 18, he says, but what then? Now, these people are trying to outrun him and compete with him. He just says, but what then? The NIV translation says, but what does that matter? You see, Paul is secure. Paul isn't there in the prison worrying about, I can't wait till I get out. I'm making a five-year plan. I'm making a 10-year plan. I'm going to show these guys what's up. I'm going to prove that I'm a successful apostle. Paul is sitting there praying that the kingdom advances, praying blessing over others, releasing others. He's concerned not for himself. He's concerned about the churches. He's concerned about the well-being of others. 
He's saying, I'm not threatened. I don't care. In fact, I'm happy about it. <laughs> I'm happy that others are succeeding because that means God's kingdom is advancing. So here's Paul, out of control, being beaten externally by others, and he's filled with joy. Because God's kingdom is advancing. You see, Paul didn't just play patty cake with his own temptation to succeed. Paul put it to death. And we don't just make our tendency to be self-obsessed look a little more Christian and put praise the Lord on it. You know, we have to put our selfish tendencies for self-glory to death. Because it is a cancer that, as Scripture says, rots the bones. And that has been my last 10 years of my life, is learning to put that to death and daily putting it back on the altar and saying, God, you're good regardless of outcomes. God, you're good regardless of uh, what happens in my life. Paul is free. And you know when you're free from comparison and envy? The result is rest. The result is joy. The result is love. And that is God's desire for you and I. Here's what that looks like lived out Romans 12, 14 to 15. And if there wasn't a more prophetic word for our times we're living in, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. It seems we're unable, often as the church right now in the world, to do this. <clears throat> because we seem to be very threatened. One way I heard it put, in the grip of envy, we weep about those who rejoice, and we rejoice over those who weep. Let me say that again. In the grip of envy, I think this is happening in our world a little bit right now, we, re we weep about those who rejoice, and we rejoice over those who weep. To love others is to put to death our comparison. To walk in God's purpose for your life and my life is to put to death comparison. You cannot run your race while you're trying to run someone else's. Let me preach to myself. I cannot run my race as long as I'm comparing myself to someone else. We have to cut it at the source and put it to death. We cannot love others and compare ourselves with them. We cannot love ourselves and compare ourselves with others. So what's Paul's secret here? I believe it's his relationship with God. Philippians 1, let's go back to 12 and 13. Paul said this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. I just feel peace in his voice. It's happened to advance the gospel. So it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. The only way that Paul could have gotten here was that he knew God. Because when I hear Paul talk, I feel complete rest in the portion of God for his life. 
He knows who he is, and he knows who God is. In fact, Paul is so confident, if we were to look ahead in verse 19 and 20, he said, whether I get delivered or not, I know it's all going to turn out for my salvation, rescue, welfare, and prosperity. Because no matter what happened, God has my best in mind. So when you know the nature and the character of God, that he is good no matter what, that he is a good shepherd who leads us beside quiet waters, that he is a good shepherd that restores our soul. When we know the nature of God, that he loves us unconditionally and that he works all things together for our good, we don't need to strive and make a way for ourselves anymore, but we can trust. And trust equals rest and joy. You ever try to walk a dog that never seems to walk with you? It's either trying to go out front, like, and it's like out front, or it's just like backpedaling and you're like dragging it as his claws are sliding along. You ever walk a dog like that or see that? And you're like, you look like the most miserable dog I've ever seen, right? You're choking yourself to death. Or you are literally dragging yourself along the ground and making it miserable for both of us. You could just walk and enjoy the day, right? That is what we often do with God. Because of our discontentment and our comparison, we focus on what God is not doing for us rather than on what he is doing and being with him in the journey. And because of that, we find ourselves choked We find ourselves dragging along. We find ourselves frustrated with God and frustrated with ourselves and our feet are hurting and our, our, you know, our neck's hurting and we can't breathe spiritually, right, because we're trying to go at our own pace and we don't want to go at God's pace. God wants to just take a walk with you. Just enjoying his purpose for your life at his pace. That's why at this church we talk about spending time with Jesus. That's why we talk about starting our day in God's presence. I need it. I need to start my day in saying, God, you're good. God, you're leading my day today. People are going to cut me off. I'm not going to get done everything I want to get done. I'm going to feel rejected by someone, but God, you're good. I'm going to feel discontent today. But God, you're my portion. That's why we talk about time with Jesus, not so that you feel better about yourself when you do it, because we're made to walk with him. There's one person that loves us perfectly, and there's one person that knows the purpose of our lives, and it's God, and we get to spend time with him. So I want to encourage you, don't come to church because you need to. Come to church because you want to be with Jesus. Right? All right. Just a couple other things I want to say about God as we end that are related to this. Number one, God is not fascinated with our giftings. You might be fascinated with you, or I might be fascinated with you. Right? We, we look at people and we're like, oh, that's amazing. If I were only more like them. If I only had their life, their car, their trip they take. They never work any hours. They're just always exploring the country, right? 
Right? So if we're like, okay, God will build the most eloquent building in the world. He's like, well, I architected the world, architected the world in the human body seven days, and I rested. <laughs> if I were to preach an awesome sermon, God's like, yeah, I spoke the world into existence. Yep. If I were to get up early and because I'm so spiritual and uh, he rose from the dead. <laughs> right? If I were to fly an airplane at a record, you know, record pace, he ascended to heaven. You know, he, he's, he loves us, but he's unimpressed by us. Yet we are often so enamored with people's gifts more than we're enamored with God. Secondly, God blesses us differently. You know, if you notice, we're different colors, sizes, different personalities. We got different giftings and callings, different places and stations in life. And you know what God said? That's good. God said that's good. We celebrate that. We celebrate diversity. And we celebrate the fact that we're not all the same kind of, if we talk about the body of Christ, we're not all the same body part. But what we tend to do is say, God, that's not fair. I would like you to make me the same. But the heart of the problem is when we say it's not fair, is not with ourselves, it's with God. It's saying, God, you're not good unless I get this. Right? The proud and entitled and unbroken heart says, I deserve better than this. And you better believe there's places in my life I was praying through that this week. Places I feel like I deserve something more than I have. I feel like, God, I've worked this hard and done this and laid down my life. I should have this, God. But God blesses us differently. God's blessings are not equal. They're not earned in a world that says everything needs to be perfectly the same. He doesn't make everything the same. You see, God's gifts are bestowed not for our glory but for his. God made us who we are and how we are not for our glory but for his. And when we try and be someone we're not, we forfeit the beautiful design that God gave us and the beautiful gifts that God gave us. Now, the last thing I want to say is God blesses us differently but loves us equally. Right? If I go around and I'm in a garden or, or uh, I like to go to landscaping nurseries. Y'all like that? I kind of nerd out there. I just, I love it. I look at the flowers. I don't say, God, which one is your favorite? Because surely one of these is better than the others. No, I just go and I enjoy the fact that they're all different. Oh, this is incredible. God, you thought of this. Look at the colors right here. And this one, that's different. And look at that. I just enjoy them all for what they are. I think that's how God feels about us. We don't need to become someone else or something else to be loved. He loves you for who you are, how you are. And if we're looking out there to be like someone else for unconditional love, let me tell you, you'll be spending the rest of your life looking for it. And you'll be tired and burned in the process. But God loves us unconditionally. How do we know that? Romans 5.8 says this, that God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for you and me because we were pretty looking. 
He didn't die for you and me because we were really spiritual. He didn't die for you and me because we were church folk. He didn't die for you and me because we were Republican or Democrat or white or whatever. Jesus died for the sin of the world because we needed a Savior and he loves us. And there's only one place you'll get that love. And until you know that you are loved for you, and he chose you, not because of what you did, but because of who he is, until you know that you'll be looking out there for the love you can only find in here with him. Same with my kids. I don't wake my kids up and hope they all look the same. I don't wake up and I'm like, I hope all my kids are like Bella today. I hope all my kids are like Judah today. That would be great. They should all do this like, no, no, no. They, they compare and compete every once in a while. And what I do when they start to compare and compete is not say, get your act together. I step in and I start to affirm the unique aspects of who each of them are. You know what, Bella, I love about you is that you're like this. And Judah, what I love about you is is the fact that you're not like Bella. You're like this, and God made you this way. And Eden, what I love about you is is that you are fun, and and you are a party on wheels, girl, because she is, right? And Bella, you are passionate, and you see the world in black and white, and you want to go change the world and make it better. And Judah, you are thoughtful, creative. There's no one like you, dude. Look at what comes out of you when you draw. I step in and affirm, and all of a sudden they start to get free. And God wants to do the same for you today. He wants to step into your world and your fears, and he wants to affirm you in the deepest places. And what happens when we take our fears and our comparison and our entitlement to him, and if we're ready to put that to death, on the other side of dying to ourselves is joy. On the other side of taking our entitlement to him and laying it on the altar, on the other side of that is being reminded of who we are and hearing his voice. And so I want to invite us to do that today. A few simple questions I have just for reflection as we end. Where is envy, comparison, and discontentment at work in our lives? And a bonus question that is, how is that working for you? Number two, are you ready to hand that over to God and receive something better? And number three, I want to invite us to ask God what he wants to give us in return. So if I can get the band up here. We're going to respond here and worship. And I want to invite us to do that. Some of us, we, we, we need to repent as we ask the Holy Spirit, God, what are you dealing with inside of me? Some of us, we, we need to repent We need to put some things to death. Maybe some of us need to come up here just kind of at the metaphorical altar and just get on our knees and say, God, I'm laying down these expectations for my life. I'm laying down how you made me and how I think I should look, but I don't. I'm laying down the job I think I should have. I'm laying down the income I think I should have. I'm laying down the friends I think I should have. I'm laying down the career I think I should have. Some of us, we need to lay it down and put our own bitterness and expectations were hanging over God to death so that he can resurrect his purposes in our hearts and our lives.